From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. Today, in an exclusive sit-down with the AJC, District Attorney Fonnie Willis says she could be in the courtroom for the trial of Donald Trump and his co-defendants. I don't think anyone should ever be surprised if D.A. Willis enters a courtroom. I'm Bill Nygut. Plus, Tamar Hallerman asked Willis if she has plans to run for higher office. I'm Tia Mitchell. It looks like efforts to stop the planned Atlanta Public Safety Training Center could fall short. Riley Bunch fills us in on the efforts to get a referendum on the ballot. I'm Greg Bluestein. It's Rudy versus Ruby. The trial that will determine how much the former New York mayor will pay for defaming two former Fulton County election workers is continuing in Washington. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tia, it is wonderful to have you always, of course, in the studio whenever you can make it. However, it's handy to have you in the studio today um, because we just got some breaking news um, right into our inboxes while we were sitting here. Yes, um, Georgia Congressman Drew Ferguson, whose district kind of starts south of Atlanta. Um, It stretches almost to Columbus. And then it also includes most of West Georgia, west of Macon. So if you think about Atlanta, Macon and Columbus creating a triangle, he represents anything within that triangle. And he's not running for reelection. He's there are many members of Congress on both parties who have announced they aren't running for reelection. But it's particularly troubling as a Republican because they already have a slim majority. They want to hold on to that majority. Um, and um, it it puts things in flux with Georgia's congressional map also under review. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about the district in a second. But for our listeners who are not as familiar with Congressman Ferguson as some of the others, even though he does represent like that little sliver of West Metro Atlanta, as you said, tell us a little bit about Ferguson um, and why you think this might be happening. So Ferguson has struggled to rise the ranks in leadership among House Republicans. He was a big ally of Steve Scalise, who um, he was Scalise's chief deputy whip. And when Scalise moved up to majority leader, Ferguson tried to move up to House Republican whip. He lost that election. That was back in December. Um, He lost that election. And then with all the fighting over House Speaker, he was one of those people who was always a Kevin McCarthy person. He never voted for anyone other than McCarthy as long as McCarthy was running for Speaker. And now we know a more conservative right wing um, kind of uh, ideology Um, We also should note that Drew Ferguson was one of only two House Republicans from Georgia who voted to accept electoral college ballots in contested states back on January 6, 2021. Um, That caught he caught a lot of heat for that. He's still very conservative. Um, He still did in other ways support some of the efforts to overturn the election. Um, So, you know, he's he's not as far right as I think the party is headed in a lot of ways. And again, he's run for some leadership positions, hasn't won them. 
And so I think he decided he'd rather spend some, well, according to his own statement today, he said he'd rather spend time with his family back in West Georgia than seek another term. Yeah, Greg, Ferguson is a very um, mild-mannered, I think of him as a Chamber of Commerce type Republican, and really in the more traditional mold, very, very conservative, but was a big booster of that Kia plant Mm -hmm. when it came to West Georgia, and you've covered him for a long time. Yeah, he's a former mayor. Of, of West Point, Georgia, the former factory town that has gotten the big boost by that Kia plant, a dentist, um, someone who is much more seen as a as a more mainstream Republican, uh, as Tia mentioned, and as you mentioned, um, but also someone who has higher ambitions, always seen as someone who could run, who wanted to be the, a form, a next, the next U.S. House Speaker, right? Who always tried to aspire to the ranks of House leadership. And to me, this says a few things. One thing it says to me immediately is that he could be, we, we could be potentially talking about him as a 2026 statewide candidate. Yes. That he is um, sort of clearing the decks. He was one of the many Republicans who was just frustrated with the back and forth over the chaos with House leadership all year and the speakers fight and all this. Uh, another thing this tells me is that if there is a, a judge's order to go redraw the maps, it just got a lot easier for Republicans if they end up losing a majority Republican district. Uh, and are forced to rewrite, redraw the maps to add one more Democratic-leaning majority black district, then they have one less Republican incumbent to worry about. And what did the judge, what did Judge Jones order? A new majority black district in West Metro Atlanta. You know, <laughs> I don't know if this was, this, 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 this might not have been the plan, but it certainly became a little bit easier for that calculus if lawmakers do have to go back and redraw those maps. Yeah, Bill, what do you think this does to the concept of the balance of power here in the state of Georgia for Republicans? They've got a 9-5 majority right now. Um, but as the district is right now, I don't know that it currently looks like a pickup opportunity. Yeah, it, 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 as, it, as it's drawn now, it appears it will remain a Republican district. The, the new maps still maintain that 9-5 uh, Republican majority. I want to add one other quick thing, if you don't mind. Uh, Tia, you are, you are right on top of this. You've already filed uh, a quick story uh, with the news release from his office having just come out right before we went on the air. And one of the things that you quote in your story is um, his uh, a comment in the news release that he and Julie, his wife, look forward to spending more time with our children and grandchildren back home. And, and the reason I think about that, I mean, that's obviously what everybody says when they uh, give up a, a public office. They want more time with their family. But it always reminds me of just how intense it is to be a member of the United States House. You're running for re-election every two years, which means you're never not running for re-election. You're typically spending four days a week, maybe five, some new weeks in Washington. Your family's back home. Families don't move to Washington to be with House members anymore. You're coming home for weekends. So unless you have a leadership role, which Drew Ferguson had, unless there is some concrete work that you believe you can accomplish in terms of issues that matter to you, I, it, it strikes me that increasingly putting up with all of the sacrifices involved in being in the U.S. House, it, it, there are any number of members who no longer see it as something that you really need to do. And especially, you have to remember, House Republicans have been particularly strained this year. Even before the speaker fight, you had, you know, again, the hardliners, which Ferguson is not one. Um, pushing, holding up votes, shutting down the floor, voting against rules, which usually are kind of given that Republicans support <coughs> rules by the Republican majority to at least allow bills to advance to the floor. They weren't even allowing bills to come to the floor. They were shutting down the floor. Then you had the drama over House Speaker. Ferguson is one of those people that was really kind of ticked off at some of the ultra conservatives who ousted McCarthy and then blocked Scalise then you know so there was just a lot of drama he was one of the people when Jim Jordan who is one of the House Freedom Caucus members he was one of the people who said he will not let Jim Jordan become speaker yeah so you know there was a lot of drama I think he's kind of over it 
Okay, well, Tia, we're going to let you go for now. I mean, you know, you need to go make some phone calls and do some more reporting on this story. Hopefully, we'll see you later. If we don't, we will continue to follow you on AJC.com to get the latest on this uh, story about the uh, announcement from Congressman Drew Ferguson that he will not seek another term in Congress. Well, right now, we're going to turn to Tamar Hallerman from the AJC, who is joining us right now. Tamar, you and Bill Rankin just did an exclusive sit-down interview with Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis. I got loads of takeaways from that interview. Y'all had lots of scoops to come out of that. But tell us a little bit about your conversation with her. Yeah, we chatted with her for our breakdown podcast. Um, And it was really the first extended sit down we'd had with her in almost a year and a half. Really, ever since the special grand jury began ramping up its work last summer, her team has really pulled back on any sort of extended sit down interview with the DA. So even though she in my opinion, seems sort of determined to not make news in this interview. It was interesting to see her mindset, where she was willing to engage with us, where she was being a little evasive, where she clearly did not want to comment much. Um, But there are also moments where I felt like she did expand on things a little more than I expected, especially when we asked her about her political future. No, when I became the district attorney in Fulton County, I wanted to do three terms, 12 years. My philosophy on my three terms in my 12 years is that I took thought that it would take to really turn the office around to exactly where it needed to be about six years. And I think we are well on our way. In fact, I think we're ahead of pace of where I thought we would be. A lot of long 15 hour days, but I do think we are ahead of pace. Tamar, what do you read into that? (laughs) Well, the DA is running for re-election next year, which I think is something people don't realize as we we cover this case. Everyone talks about Donald Trump being on the ballot, but it's also important to note that she's asking for voters for another four years. Um, But of course, her critics are often saying the DA is only doing this because she's looking at a run for higher office. Um, The DA hadn't expanded much on that. But then I asked her explicitly if she had any plans for higher office, either in 2026 or in the future. And her response was pretty intriguing. It really was. And I have people asking me all the time, Greg, if... um, Fannie Willis is planning to run for a higher office. They want her to run for a for a higher office. She has a, an incredibly high profile, much higher than um, any former DA that we've ever seen here. In the yeah, state. tomorrow. That's why I'm I'm so glad you asked this question because uh, it has been the subject of so much speculation, including you know particularly Attorney General. There's been a lot of talk about that because we 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 are reasonably confident that uh, the incumbent Attorney General Chris Carr will run for governor. He's told people he's running for governor. Um, and it would it would make sense. And what she told you is, look, I thought about this for three terms, but maybe my mindset is changing because it turns out you can affect a lot, a lot broader policies in a statewide office like AG. She didn't say AG, but a statewide office than you can as Fulton County prosecutor. Exactly. And I pushed her exactly. Would you see yourself running for AG or governor? And she really didn't engage with it yeah. at all, but she left the door open, which is kind of what a consummate as somebody I used to cover Washington for many, many years. That's exactly what you say if you are interested in that. So certainly interesting to watch that she did not shut the door. Tamar, um, aside from the fact that I imagine that you and Bill Rankin um, and Shannon McCaffrey probably were really aggressive in continuing to request interviews with Fonnie Willis, um, I wonder why after a year and a half, what your sense of uh, the reasoning was that she finally thought she should sit down with you. Rarely do people in public life Uh, agree to an interview if they don't have some agenda that they want to get across. In this case, what do you think she did this interview? Why, why, what message do you think she most wanted to get across? You know, Bill, I've been thinking about that a lot ever since they agreed to do this interview. And I, I still don't have a great answer. Although I will say the message that she was conveying over and over and over again was that she was not treating Donald Trump or any of these other 14 defendants any differently in her argument than anyone else going through the system. She kept saying, I don't know why you're so 
obsessed with this case. I don't know why it's so interesting to people. We're treating them the same way. And of course, you hear all the time on the campaign trail from Donald Trump, from his allies, that of course, they are targeting him because he's a Republican, because he's a political opponent. Um, all the time, they, they talk about Fannie Willis being an ambitious prosecutor. I've heard Donald Trump use that word. Um, so she must be seeking higher office and is using, you know, targeting Republicans in order to get there. And so that was something reading between the lines that I really kind of felt coming through. At the same time, as I was asking her a lot of about a lot of the big issues of the day in this case, she really was not interested in engaging on a lot of that. One of the the questions I was really hoping to get answered was this parallel fight going on in Washington in the Jack Smith January 6th case. Right now, uh, he went to the Supreme Court to ask them to weigh in on the concept of presidential immunity, which of course is something, a potential ruling that could have a real impact on that case. She really didn't want to get into that, just saying, you know, she looked at it and she felt confident, but let's let the court decide. Um, and so it was interesting to hear where she was willing to engage and where she wasn't. So one place she was definitely willing to engage was a question you asked her about the Fulton County Jail. She has been targeted. She, you know, As much as Republicans say she is targeting them and Donald Trump, Republicans in the state have absolutely been targeting Fannie Willis. And so a big piece of a recent announcement from Republican lawmakers that they plan to investigate the Fulton County Jail a big piece of that was a conversation about Fonnie Willis. And uh, in their words, why isn't she doing more to keep the docket down there shorter and keep people's time in the Fulton County Jail um, less uh, extended uh, because the conditions down there are really absolutely uh, dangerous and in some cases just atrocious. Um, tell us a little bit about that pushback from her, because to me, it seemed very um, uh, aggressive, I think is the only word I can say. She was very willing to hit back against some of her Republican critics, either, you know, in the state Senate where they launched that inquiry into the jail, but also in the House Judiciary Committee, where they have been looking around to see the kinds of contacts she's had with the January 6th committee um, with Jack Smith's office at DOJ. And we've got that audio right now, that answer. Those state senators should worry about the state prisons because the state prisons are out of control and they actually do have authority over that. Um, I, as a district attorney, am not over the jail. But if we want to have a real conversation about the jail, that jail had, was under federal uh, authority more than 20 years ago. That jail has had huge problems. We have some commissioners that have been sitting around here, sitting on their hands, not building a new jail that is desperately needed. Um, they've put my sheriff in a terrible position when you have walls crumbling and people are making shanks out of the very material that builds the jail. Um, but the reality is this, they have a hard time criticizing somebody that comes to work every single day. Laura, for a district attorney who you said was resolute with for not making news, this was this was pretty remarkable. You know, these were her most extensive comments about the efforts here in Georgia from a, a number of Donald Trump's allies in really important places, like in the Georgia Senate, uh, to directly take aim at her. You know, it, they filed a, a complaint under the new DA Oversight Commission uh, to, to seeking to reprimand her, and now this Fulton County probe. And these were some pretty striking comments that we have not seen before out of her. Usually. You know, she either declines to comment or lets surrogates kind of do that for her. Yeah. And just to even hear the inflection in her voice as she responds to stuff like that, you can see the sorts of things that animate her um, in this job. And when... Uh, also, when we asked her about the House Judiciary Committee inquiry, and there's there was just a new back and forth with with Chairman Jim Jordan that you wrote about last week, Greg. You know, she called it foolishness, and I asked her if she would go in and testify, and she said only if she could do it in public, so the American people could hear the truth and not behind closed doors, so people could lie about it. Um, you know, Tamara, it's always struck me, and you'll certainly correct me if you think I'm wrong, that Fannie Willis really loves her job. And that she loves being a prosecutor, particularly. Um, so it's not surprising that she, one of the things she told you in that interview was uh, we should not be surprised if she decides that she herself will be in court as one of the prosecutors of Donald Trump and the co-defendants in the conspiracy case. It almost felt like she uh, has this sense of eagerness about being able to be an active part of all that. And of course, if she is looking at a future at, a, at another office, it doesn't hurt her profile to be in that position either. Yeah, she told us she's a trial attorney in her soul or something along those lines. 
And she mentioned one of the favorite jobs she ever had was being a prosecutor doing homicide cases. And you can absolutely see that. Um, last month, right before Thanksgiving, we saw her argue um, in front of Judge McAfee for the first time post-indictment. Um, this had to do with revoking the, the bond of one of the defendants in the case, Harrison Floyd, who she argued was intimidating Ruby Freeman. And you could see the emotion in her voice. I mean, she was really laying into Harrison Floyd and his actions and all of that. And you could see this was a woman who was very in charge of her words, who felt so animated and passionate about what was going on. And so we asked her about it in the context of that. And uh, she speaks in the third person sometimes, but she said, uh, you shouldn't be surprised if you saw the DA <laughs> arguing in court. And we asked her in trial and she said, yeah, it would not be not be surprising. So certainly something to watch. Yeah, she certainly thinks of herself first and foremost as a, as a murder attorney, I think is what she said, a murder prosecutor. Um, and she worked in that DA's office as an assistant DA for 16 years before the job that she's got now when she decided to run against Paul Howard um, and knocked him right out of office and uh, is where she is and listened to that fateful phone call even before she was sworn into office. And uh, now here she is, uh, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis. Um, Tamar, one last question before we have to let you go. What are you looking at, you, Bill Rankin, and uh, Shannon McCaffrey? Of course, that um, extended Fannie Willis interview is available on the Breakdown podcast, which went up yesterday live. It is terrific. For anybody who hasn't heard it yet, go find that. Um, but Tamar, in the meantime, what do y'all have coming up? Well, we're watching for two things this week. The first is the conclusion of the Ruby Freeman, Rudy Giuliani defamation trial, Rudy versus Ruby, as uh, as Greg has been calling it. Our colleague David Wickert is in Washington. And of course, many of these players, the defendants, um, many of the witnesses are also players in this Fulton County case. So how all this plays out in courtroom is being very closely watched by DA Willis and us down here. Also on Friday in 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, federal court here in Atlanta, Mark Meadows the former White House chief of staff, is trying again to try and remove his case in Fulton County to federal court. Um, he tried earlier this fall at the, the lower district court level. Um, he was rejected in that request. So he's trying again with this appeal. And it's going to be closely watched by us and, of course, the four other defendants who are trying the same thing. All right. Well, Tamar, thank you so much for joining us. We are going to continue to look for your coverage, particularly uh, today and Friday after that Mark Meadows hearing. Thanks so much for being with us. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. Hip-hop is a product of Black people. It's a product of Black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC Politics team. Just go to AJC.com slash newsletters and sign up today. AJC.com slash newsletters. Guys, back in September, opponents of the planned Atlanta Public Safety Training Center wheeled 16 boxes of signatures into City Hall in an effort to start a referendum to stop construction of that facility. But a new analysis from several news organizations, including the AJC and WABE, shows that that effort may have come short. We don't know for sure. But here to talk about that is Riley Bunch, our colleague who um, was a part of that investigation. And Riley, there was a hand count of the petition papers. Are you telling me you guys went through 100,000 pieces of paper? Yes, our lovely and wonderful data team in conjunction with our media partners on this went through and tallied all the entries, right? So every single line that was filled out with a signature, an address, a birth date, which, which was redacted, but every one of those lines, and we came up with around 108,000, which is a different number than organizers said they had um, submitted in September. Okay. And when y'all did a random analysis of that, um, I think y'all pulled about a thousand signatures to see whether in that sample, those were valid Atlanta voters. And what did y'all find out? 
Yeah, we found about half of them could be matched to the voter rolls, right? So there's a couple of different eligibility requirements for this petition. First, of course, is the residency requirement. They have to live within City of Atlanta residents and be a registered voter, not only today, but in 2021 as well, which was the last municipal election. So we found we ourselves could match about half of those, right? And that's by going through kind of trying to figure out the names that were signed, trying to match them to addresses on the voter file. It's definitely a very, very arduous process. But um, but about half of those we could not match and another 5% were undetermined, right? So it's really going to come down to a lot of um, how the city is going to go about the verification process and then pending litigation. Riley, can you uh, give us any sense of how many of those uh, petitions that you looked at were from people in DeKalb County, which has been a contentious part of this process for a long time now, whether those uh, signatures should count in all of this. Yeah, not so much on the DeKalb County side, but, you know, what we did find was there was a majority of the um, signatures from around five zip codes around that DeKalb County zip code. So even though the center is in um, unincorporated DeKalb County, it has a 30316 zip code. And, you know, that's a lot of the argument, right, is is there more support coming from areas around the center, coming from people, you know, that might live close to the center but still count as an Atlanta residence? You know, that's a big thing that we found is that there was an argument with data that there were more support for the petition in those areas of the city and not so much in the northern parts. Riley, what did the supporters of this, um, or I, I should say, what are the supporters of the petition process, but the opponents of the Atlanta Public Training Center, uh, Public Safety Training Center, how are they responding to this? Th- these findings? You know, we had a very lengthy interview with them for the process um, and outside of City Hall and on this story. And they're encouraged by the numbers, right? You know, even it's statistically possible that they could be pushed over the finish line, even though they face really, really big obstacles. Um, And also, you know, they kind of proved officials wrong that said no one wants to vote on this. There's only support in these certain areas of the city. They have at least by our statistical sample, 48 to 52 or yeah, around that 50,000 signatures, right? That's the range that we came up with. And that is a lot of people. And that, you know, in our interviews with them, they said they should, officials should be called to put this on the ballot because there are so many people that signed and could be identified. But Riley, based on the number that it looks like they may have, does it look like officials would be required to put it on the ballot. Tell us a little bit about where the, what the numbers mean literally in terms of um, where this might go in the future. Yeah, so they have to hit a 15% threshold of registered voters in the city of Atlanta, both in 2021 and today, right? Um, and that's around 58,000 or so signatures. So if they don't hit that threshold when the city starts its um, verification process, you know, it doesn't move forward. But they always push the argument that um, a city council could put it on the ballot at any time, right? There's different avenues. But we can't forget that another thing that might impact the outcome a lot is the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals is having a busy day today, and they have the petition um, lawsuit against the city challenging the residency requirement today. They're hearing oral arguments, so that could have a big impact as well. Okay, tell us a little bit more about that case. When you talk about the residency requirement that's being challenged, does that mean that right now you're required to be a city of Atlanta resident in order to weigh in? What are they challenging? Yeah, it's actually on the residency requirement for um, signature collectors. So there's no no disputing that you kind of have to be a, a, an Atlanta resident to vote on this issue, right, since it is an Atlanta issue. But DeKalb residents who live close to the um, training facility, they said, hey, we want to be able to aid this effort if we want to see it on the ballot, right? So they originally sued the city and the state because this the petition process is outlined in state code. As well, the main, you know, it preempts everything cities can do. And, you know, they want to have a say or want to be able to help in the effort. So that's what the court case is in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals today. There was an original ruling that sided with the DeKalb County residents that extended the signature collection deadline, which was appealed by the city and put on pause again. So it's really been this back and forth 
there could impact the people that collected signatures and therefore the number of entries. Riley, there's a really important political dynamic going on here, too, because we've obviously seen the governor ally himself with Mayor Dickens, saying that more Democrats like Mayor Dickens should be coming out in support of this project. We saw Republican lawmakers in the special session just last week try to get Democrats on the record. It was a very divisive vote uh, over a cops uh, over a public safety training center uh, uh, resolution just a few days ago in the state capitol. Um, but at the same time, you've quoted a number of senior Democratic officials who are raising concerns with this referendum, with this petition process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that can be agreed on between the supporters of the project and the um, opposition of the project in City Hall specifically is that this petition process is a mess, right? It is arduous. It is strenuous. It takes tons of money and tons of time. And even, you know, we spoke with Michael Julian Bond, who sits on council, is one of the most vocal supporters of the project, who said, yeah, we might need to, you know, write something and get this process ironed out in city code. There was an effort to do so that was ultimately squashed. Um, I believe it was last week or the week before. But um, the petition process, it, it could use some tweaking for sure. Uh, Riley, in that lengthy conversation you had with opponents of the training center in which you talked to them about your findings, um, you say that they still expressed optimism that they'll get the number of signatures they need. But what are they saying about what they do next if they don't get the signatures they need? This is a group that clearly is energized in a way that I can't imagine they'll stop even if the petitions don't uh, validate a referendum. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've seen this throughout the process, right? One avenue doesn't necessarily work. Tons of public comment at City Hall doesn't necessarily work. Um, So we move to the referendum effort. And, you know, it would be uh, a shock if opponents didn't keep up the campaign. It's still in the building process, right? Um, there's probably small pieces of legislation there have to go through City Hall for to authorize different funds and things for the project. Um, but also, you know, this has so much national attention, too, in terms of national organizers. We saw that with the, the big protest on Constitution Road um, not long ago. Um, and there's no indication that they're going to back down. So that I, even... If, you know, the petition fails, I don't think we're going to get rid of this controversy anytime soon. And Riley, tell us again, who exactly is opposing this right now? Obviously, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens is going full force in favor of it. It is more than 40 percent constructed. It is well underway. But uh, along with the initial protesters, we also have started to see voting rights groups come in and talk about the referendum process. Um, The two Democratic senators, uh, certainly Senator Warnock, has weighed in on the referendum process as well. Who is driving this opposition right now and who is joined in with them? Yeah, it's it's definitely hard to keep up with, right? You know, we've had a couple of years of people coming out in favor or against it. Um, And in terms of the referendum effort, not so long ago, we saw um, Stacey Abrams come out, her voting rights group come out in support of the referendum effort. U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock weighed in there when he issued some concern about the process that the city said it was going to use to start verification, even though the verification process hasn't started yet, right? Um, And then, of course, you know, we saw at the legislature, when state lawmakers were bringing up resolutions, um, that there had some Democrats who would vote in favor and some that were adamantly standing against it. You know, it's kind of the further the project gets along, the more forced um, politicians and voting rights groups, advocates are forced to take sides. Riley, I want to ask you about what's next, because lawmakers are returning to the General Assembly in just a few weeks. And, we, you know, I mentioned the resolution that passed that the Republicans kind of forced Democrats to take a stand. Only a handful voted against uh, a, a resolution supporting the training center. But there will be talk. And I don't know how far we'll get, but there will be talk about legislation uh, to to block these sorts of referenda from taking place, um, you know, on, on projects that were approved either by county or city government. A lot of the stems from a, a Supreme Court, a Georgia Supreme Court ruling from earlier this year involving the Camden County proposed spaceport. What are you hearing about that? Well, it is so interesting because I don't think 
um, myself included, didn't realize how rare these processes were when in Georgia and specifically in Atlanta, like Atlanta's never had a petition process before. Right. Um, So it is really kind of learning on the spot and learning as you go. And it is also a process that's faced a lot of legal dispute. You know, Greg, you mentioned the Camden spaceport was a petition case um, that was ruled on by the Georgia Supreme Court in favor of the people. Right. But we've had other cases that ruled in favor of the local governments. Um, So it definitely is kind of an up for interpretation process. And it would be surprising if you didn't see, um, especially state Republicans who may be watching Atlanta and being like, oh, I hope this doesn't happen where I live. Right. Um, Put some restrictions on the process. Uh, Meanwhile, Riley, um, we know that a jury has now been selected in the trial of the first of the defendants in the RICO case brought by Attorney General Chris Carr against the uh, so-called Cop City uh, protesters, some of whom were violent in their uh, protests against the center. Uh, Isla King is her name. The trial won't start until January 10th. But the jury is ready, and it's clear that uh, the state has every intention, despite a lot of criticism, of moving forward with uh, – there are some 60, I think, uh, people who are included in this uh, RICO conspiracy case? Yeah, Bill, and you bring up a good point that um, that defendant's trial isn't until January, right? There's 61 of these defendants, so it's going to be a long time that we're going through them all. And also, um, lots of news today on this front, but the estate and APD have given an indication that they're not going to stop prosecuting people either, right? Today, just before I hopped on this call, the Atlanta Police Department was having a press conference, and they broke news um, that Local, state, and federal partners, all law enforcement partners, pooled in on a $200,000 reward for any individuals with information that leads to arrests um, of people involved in torching construction equipment and doing other damage at the facility. He said there's been about $10 million of damage worth of done in Atlanta related to the facility. Um, so not only do we have the RICO trial, as you know, they are they are continuing to go hard after these people. And... Um, and they're proving that today with that news that they just dropped. Riley, that reminds me of this sort of this dichotomy that we've seen in the messaging and the actions of the of the people who are opposing the training center in that when there was that um, kind of planned mass protest uh, over near the training facility, we were all we all received the talking points from the groups that they wanted to have a peaceful protest, told people um, not to bring any kind of weapons or anything that could be construed as threatening. But um, on the other hand, outside of press releases and cameras, there has been quite a bit of destruction and um, aggressive action on behalf of some other protesters. Again, we don't know who's doing what, but it does seem to not be a unified uh, message of of peaceful uh, protest. Yeah, and that's what's so hard for the opposition, too, is that there's so many different factions of opponents and there's so many different reasons why people don't want the facility from, you know, fears of police militarization to environmental concerns in the South River Force. And that means varying levels of, you know, violence and action from the different groups. And I think that it's also been hard as national organizations and national Um, organizers and activists have gotten involved, right? You know, that big protest at Constitution Road, that wasn't um, organized by a lot of local people. You know, they were involved in some extent, but it was different than what we had seen. Um, And, you know, it is just, it's hard to separate out for both people that support it, for like law enforcement who are going after these cases and the illegal acts and the petition people that are, you know, are acting of good faith and want this to go about the right way. Okay, well, um, Raleigh, congratulations on a terrific piece of reporting, sorting through all of those signatures. I think it gave us a lot of insight into um, just how much really significant opposition there is to this, um, and as well as raising the question about whether it's going to be enough to really have a petition um, and a referendum on the ballot uh, when Atlanta voters do go back to the polls. Raleigh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. 
Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Well, Rudy Giuliani is in a Washington court this week and has decided not to testify in his defamation case against him. The AJC's David Wickert has been in the courtroom all week as a jury heard from the Georgia election workers, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, about just the real incredible struggles that they've been going through ever since Giuliani's false and repeated attacks against them over the last three years. Well, Bill, this was breaking news when we came into the studio because we initially thought because Rudy Giuliani had said he would be testifying in a Washington courtroom, and that was supposed to start about 45 minutes ago. Yeah, and he's not doing it. Uh, You know, perhaps his lawyers talked him out of it. Maybe uh, because just the other day he came out of the courthouse and told reporters, well, yes, I still believe that they tried to rig the election, and uh, and I'm not going to apologize uh, for that. So it probably didn't make a whole lot of sense for him to get on the witness stand. But one of the things, Patricia, that I think has been so powerful about watching this unfold, we've all heard by now because of their testimony in front of the January 6th committee, because of many stories that have been written about them, what a nightmare the lives of Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss became in the aftermath of Donald Trump himself, plus Rudy Giuliani and others, attacking them by name for trying to fix the Fulton County election for president. But what we started hearing this week was the prosecution playing some of the messages that they received from people who were convinced they were criminals. I got to be careful. You can't read these in, in their entirety. But one of them was, I hope the federal government hangs you and your daughter from the Capitol Dome, you treasonous expletive. I pray that I will be sitting close enough to hear your next snap. That was just one of dozens of phone messages they received. So to hear what they went through, um, it's just appalling. And your heart goes out to them even more than it already did. Yeah, Greg, uh, both Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss have now testified this week to jurors. Um, And we're going to get a little bit into the legalities of that in a minute. But... Uh, what we've heard from them, it wasn't it not just the phone messages, not just the emails, not just all of the hateful rhetoric, the death threats. Uh, uh, Ruby Freeman and Shamos testified that there was one point where strangers came up to Shamos's grandmother's house where she was living, she thought in secret, and uh, knocked on the door and tried to make a citizen's arrest. Yeah, and there was another point where. Uh, uh, people with bullhorns on January 5th of 2021 surrounded their homes uh, and, and, and basically tried to harass and intimidate them. Um, you know, we heard reports from anything from going from being doxxed with uh, orders of, uh, of, of unordered pizzas going to their homes to death threats that they got. You know, every time I hear their testimony, whether it be to the January 6th committee or their public remarks, it gets me all over again. It's just, it's so heart wrenching because these are two election workers who are crucial frontline defenders of our democracy. They're, they're, they're some of the thousands of people out there in Georgia every election cycle who make our election systems run, and they should not be subjected to this sort of hate and vitriol for just doing their jobs. Yeah, this all started, Bill, when Rudy Giuliani went before a Georgia Senate committee in December and played video of Ruby Freeman and Shamos counting ballots on election night, as one does as an election worker. But he described what he said was in the video. Now, obviously, um, what we all know was happening in the video was that they were counting ballots from and then packing away ballots in approved state sanctioned ballot cases. Uh, Rudy Giuliani said with their names and describing them like uh, passing uh, drugs. He described them as somebody who was casing the joint, really describing them in these terms like they were thieves and drug dealers. Um, but it, he has said that, that that's my First Amendment right. I can say what I need to say in defense of my client. Um, it, but it's not without 
its consequences. And I think that's what this is about. This entire uh, process is about because we've also heard it's not just the women who've been suffering. Um, Shamos's son failed every class in school while all of this chaos was unfolding around them. Um, They're still paranoid. They're scared to walk outside by themselves. It, It continues to turn their lives upside down. Yeah, uh, Rudolph Giuliani, it, when he came to the Georgia Capitol, uh, showed video that he claimed was they're passing these thumb drives back and forth like they were passing back and forth. Heroin, he said. We, we get the racist implications of that, I believe. Um, it turns out they were mints. Um, but here's the, the thing. Um, the judges already found Giuliani guilty of defamation. Uh, You're right, there may be some First Amendment issues that could go to a higher court on this, but the judge in this case has said he did defame these two, and now this trial, of course, the jury is simply there to decide how much of a penalty Rudy Giuliani should pay for the defamation, not that Rudy Giuliani has any money to pay no matter what the outcome. you, You made such an important point about that, what Bill was just talking about in your column uh, today, uh, where you said it's not just about the financial damages, it sends a broader message. Yeah, that's right. Because what Rudy Giuliani has already pled to, he pled no contest to defaming these women. Now, he, outside of a courtroom, continues to say, I didn't do anything wrong. The election was stolen. They did try to steal these votes. But in a legal pleading, he pled no contest, which meant he was letting the case go. He was opening himself up to those damages. And uh, now he could be facing up to $40 million in damages. But uh, the judge now has said, you are continuing to defame these women outside of court when he says, I've done nothing wrong. These women are lying. I'm the one telling the truth. Even this week, the judge has said, you're defaming these women. But so, Tia, what my column was about today was just the fact that it's not just about, did Rudy Giuliani lie? Yes, he did. Is he going to pay the money? He may not have that money. But the question is, is what are the consequences for a public official making false accusations about private citizens with no way to defend themselves in a public hearing? What what are the consequences for doing something like that? And I think, well, that's what this judge is going to have to decide if they want to send a message to Greg's point that if you do this, there could be consequences. As we know, we're going into another big presidential year. So this is about deciding if you're going to try to set some type of precedent or put a little bit of fear is the wrong word, but maybe something that might cause people going into 2024 to think differently, think a second time before they say certain things, knowing that there could be repercussions. I I thought another thing that was really wonderful about your column today, Patricia, was you point out that Giuliani's uh, lawyers are saying, this poor man, he's he's old. This is taking a terrible toll on his physical (laughs) well-being. And then you point out the difference between that and Giuliani on his nightly uh, is it on X? I don't even know what play. How do you find it? Well, I don't even know where I'm it is. I'm sorry to admit, I jumped down the rabbit hole of America's Mare Live, which is a nightly podcast. It's not a podcast, it's a video. It's like a nightly show on Twitter. And this is Rudy Giuliani talking extemporaneously for up to two hours every single night. He did it on Thanksgiving, he did it the day he was indicted down here in Fulton County. He is plenty vigorous to be out there <laughs> selling my pillows and speaking out in his own defense. And even on the show, he continues to defame Ruby Freeman and Shamos. And Patricia, that's why it was so surprising today to find out that he's not going to testify because on that show, outside the courtroom, when he's talking to reporters, he says, you'll never believe what I've got in store when I get to testify. And his lawyers, you can tell, are just cringing because they, they obviously do not want him to take that witness stand. Yeah. Well, Tia, last night on America's Mayor Life, he did say that his lawyers had told him to stop talking so much. He said, right. apparently, I'm not supposed to talk about this case, uh, which he was you, he was desperate to talk about on America's Mirror Life. <laughs> yeah. I, again, I think it's going to be so interested what this judge, interesting what this judge decides, because now it's almost like you're not just 
continuing to talk about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss in ways that you've said are not true. But now you're trying to judge. And usually judges don't like that. They don't like when they feel like someone's not honoring kind of the directives of the court. Patricia, you've got to find better viewing mm-hmm. in the evening. I mean, Survivor was on last Well, night. I really, to be serious, Bill, um, I found it really instructive because yeah. – Right now, Donald Trump is the leading candidate for the GOP nomination. Uh, Joe Biden is the leading candidate for the Democratic nomination. We could be right back where we started on election night 2024. And has Giuliani paid any price? Has Donald Trump paid any price for what they did the last, last time around? Then you should be congratulated for your commitment mm-hmm. to your That's job. journalism. <laughs> and remember, there's, this also factors into the Fulton County election interference case, too, because this defense that Giuliani is putting up right now could also be a glimpse of the legal strategy that he will employ and his attorneys will employ uh, if this Fulton County or when this Fulton County case moves forward. Yeah, that's all. That's exactly right. And we've got all of that coming up here. Um, here in Georgia, we've got multiple cases, Tia. We've got multiple moving parts. Uh, David Wickert continues to be in the courtroom for the AJC um, during this defamation case of Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. His coverage will continue to be um, posting at theajc.com. Uh, we will continue to follow him there as well. Well, in the meantime, we here at Politically Georgia love hearing from our listeners, so we've set up the Politically Georgia call-in hotline, which you can call anytime with questions or comments for us. We play those questions back and answer them every Friday morning during one of our favorite segments of the week, the listener mailbag. The number to call is 404-526-2527. That number is 404-526-2527. Thanks so much for spending your time with us today on Politically Georgia. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10 or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.